Welcome to the History Guy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history, from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. This episode of Forgotten History is brought to you by Magellan TV, a new kind of streaming service determined to bring you the best documentaries from around the globe. On today's episode, we bring you two stories about our favorite house pets, cats and dogs. First is the incredible story of the role of cats in the creation of civilization. Then we will listen to the history guy tell us about the only dog to be enlisted in the Royal Navy, Just Nuisance. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. The establishment of sea trade routes was one of the most important events in human history. While humans had been using seaworthy vessels to populate Oceania as early as 50,000 years ago, it wasn't really until about the 5th century BC that sea trade routes between civilizations started to occur. Those early sea trade routes established connections between cultures. They moved goods enormous distances, and they laid the foundation for a economic activity that is still vitally important today when 90% of the world's trade goods are moved by the international shipping industry. And while many technologies had to be developed to develop human sea trade, one innovation that came millennia earlier was surprisingly key. That innovation had already played a central role in one of the most important developments in human cultural history, and it still plays a central role in the high-tech world of social media. I'm talking, of course, of one of the most important events ever to occur in human history, the domestication of Felis Silvestris Catus, otherwise known as the house cat. While our understanding of the prehistory of humanity is constantly evolving, Homo sapiens, or anatomically modern humans, were thought to have arisen in Africa between two and three hundred thousand years ago. But for the vast majority of that time, somewhere around 95% of the time that humans have spent on Earth, humans were exclusively hunter-gatherers, nomads with no set home. It was during that period that humans began a process that would be critical to the development of the human race. We started to domesticate animals. While the origin of domesticated dogs is a matter of some dispute, most scientists agree that they were the first animals domesticated, possibly as far back as 40,000 years ago, from a species of wolf that is now extinct. Wolves were almost certainly domesticated for the purpose of hunting. In fact, one theory suggests that wolves and humans domesticated each other, and that human hunting techniques seemed to change with the domestication of dogs. It was a symbiotic relationship that would allow both species to prosper. But then, around 12,000 years ago, the most profound change in the history of human culture started to occur. The Neolithic Revolution. After hundreds of thousands of years of wandering the earth as hunters and gatherers, in a period of just a few thousand years, vast swaths of the world's human population gave up their nomadic lifestyle and started living in settlements. There are numerous theories about what drove the sudden and dramatic change, many dealing with climate changes that occurred as glaciers receded at the end of the last great ice age. This is a period when more animal species were domesticated, including sheep and goats, and later pigs, horses and donkeys, cattle, chickens and camels. But most importantly, this period included the domestication of crops, the selective breeding of cereal grasses to make them more amenable to agriculture. It was this change that, while decreasing the variety of food sources, allowed people to achieve food surpluses, requiring the storage of excess food. And that is where Felis Silvestris Catus comes in. As people started to store grain, that grain attracted vermin, notably rats and mice. 
Rats and mice can be devastating to food stocks. A 1995 study of markets in Pakistan found that just 40 rats can consume 185 kilograms of rice in a year, and typically spoil or contaminate three times as much as they eat. And in the presence of food, they can be incredibly prolific. Just one pair of rats can produce as many as 10,000 offspring in a single year. Even today, mice and rats eat and spoil enough rice in Asia to feed an estimated 200 million people. And mice and rats are notorious for spreading disease. And of course, cats excel at hunting mice and rats. And one type of cat in particular was especially suited to domestication. The Near Eastern Wildcat, also known as the African Wildcat. The species is native to North and East Africa, the Near East, and the Arabian Peninsula. Genetic research suggests the species arose somewhere between 70 to 100,000 years ago. And while there are many wildcat species, this species was unique. Something in their genetic variants, some innate curiosity, made them more willing to approach humans, who encouraged them as a means of controlling vermin. This wasn't a fluke. Researchers at Oxford University have found five different matriarchal lineages from which all modern domestic cats belong. That indicates that cats of this species were recruited across a wide area over time. The species was predilected towards its job. While the original domestication was thought to have occurred in Egypt, new evidence suggests it occurred even earlier in Mesopotamia. But once domesticated, they were popular. Cats seemed to have followed tribes as they migrated across the ancient world. In general, throughout Africa, Asia, and Europe, wherever humans settled down during the Neolithic Revolution, they brought cats with them. Cats were, in essence, a key technology in the most important event ever in human culture. It is hard to overstate what this means. The Neolithic Revolution first allowed people to settle. This eventually resulted in greater population density, which then gave rise to political structures and eventually civilizations. And thus, in some sense, you can say that cats were responsible for the rise of human civilization. They were so revered in Egypt, for example, that it was illegal to export them. At least as early as the 5th century BC, the penalty for killing a cat in Egypt was death. Cats likewise played a major role in the mythology of many cultures. They are part of the literary tradition in India, where the story of Puss in Boots is actually derived from an Indian folktale from the 5th century BC. In Persian legend, a, ma a magician created cats for the hero Rastam, weaving them from smoke, flame, and two of the brightest stars in the sky. A beckoning cat is good luck in Japan, associated with the god of mercy, and an ancient Chinese myth says that cats were sent down by the gods to oversee the running of creation, but were too fond of sleeping to do a good job of it. But the utility of cats had still not reached its zenith. Having played a critical role in the rise of human civilizations, they would play another critical role in connecting those civilizations together. By studying ancient cat DNA, researchers have been able to determine that cat populations had a second great expansion starting around the 5th century BC, when cats of Egyptian lineage were found to spread very quickly throughout Eurasia and Africa. The implication is simple. As soon as civilizations started trading with each other by sea, those sailors started carrying cats with them. The reason for the ship's cat is very similar for the reason that they were domesticated in the first place, pest control. Rats and mice can cause significant damage, eating and contaminating the ship's stores needed to feed the sailors on long voyages, damaging cargo, and even destroying critical parts of the ship, gnawing ropes, sails, and even wood, quite the issue, on a wooden ship. Rats and mice can even damage wiring on modern ships. Among the famous seafarers who apparently carried rats were the Vikings, where a cat of Egyptian lineage was found in a Viking burial site in northern Germany. The far-ranging Vikings, whose own mythology includes cats, may then have brought them to, to England, Scotland, and Western Europe. In fact, cats were so integrated with world trade that the etymology of the word cat is unknown, unable to be determined because it has been shared so widely among divergent cultures, making the word a classic example of a wanderwort.
Having provided their essential service to facilitate yet another evolution in human culture, ship's cats remain a tradition to this day, and some have become quite famous. Blackie, for example, the ship's cat aboard HMS Prince of Wales, garnered international attention when she singled out Prime Minister Winston Churchill on a state visit in 1941. Blackie was renamed Churchill, and later survived the sinking of the Prince of Wales. Or Chibley, the ship's cat on the training bark Picton Castle, who circumnavigated the globe five times before retiring to land in Nova Scotia in 2010. Or the sad tale of Mrs. Chippy, a companion to Henry McNeish, the ship's carpenter on Ernest Shackleton's ill-fated 1914 Arctic expedition. When Shackleton's ship, the Endurance, was crushed by ice, Shackleton ordered the cat to be killed, as he did not think it would survive an ice crossing. The decision was part of what contributed to McNeish's brief rebellion against Shackleton. Despite the bad blood, McNeish was instrumental in the successful voyage in open boats to find rescue. McNeish's grave in New Zealand is adorned with a statue of his beloved Mrs. Chippy. And maybe the most distinguished of the ship's cats was Simon, the ship's cat of the frigate HMS Amethyst, who not only single-handedly eliminated a below-deck rat infestation, but who survived grievous injury from Chinese shellfire during the Yangtze incident in 1949, action for which he was awarded the Dickin Medal, commonly called the Victoria Cross for Animals, and was promoted to the rank of Able Sea Cat. Despite their centuries-long tradition of keeping ship's cats, the Royal Navy banned cats and other pets in 1975. And yet, ship's cats are still very popular on private and commercial vessels today. In 2017, for example, the USA Today ran a story about the adoption of a kitten named Lilu as the new ship's cat aboard the tall-masted schooner Lynx, a fitting heir to a proud tradition. While there are still working cats today, for the most part, today cats are kept for companionship, not for controlling mice and rats. And that tradition actually dates all the way back to Roman times, where Romans used domesticated weasels to catch rats, but kept cats as treasured pets. At some points in history, cats have faced gross discrimination. They were sometimes killed wholesale at various times and in various places because of their supposed connection to witches. And yet cats are still enormously popular today, as anyone who follows social media can attest. And while worldwide more households have dogs, households with cats tend to have more animals, and so house cats far outnumber pet dogs in the world today. A fitting homage to the underappreciated role that Felis Silvestris Catus has played in human history. Now's the part of the episode where we get to talk to the history guy about the episode we just listened to and some behind-the-scenes stuff that you only get to hear about on the podcast. I think it's interesting to talk about something like the history of house cats because it really kind of emphasizes the complexity of history. Of course, humans play a central role, but it's it's not just about us. It's, there's so much more in history to talk about than just the, the human angle of it. It's been part of the, the fun of being the history guy is that you find out things like dandelions or helium are so important to human history. So you and I both have cats and we love cats, uh, but it's hard to imagine. I'm, my cats, if they saw a mouse, I don't think they would have any idea what to do with a mouse. I mean, my cats are what you would define as a non-working breed. Uh, but it's hard to imagine you go back and realize that uh, we couldn't have had human civilization without cats, that domesticating cats was a keystone technology that allowed the development of human civilization. And that just tells you, I mean, history's all around you. It's not just about cats, because, you know, we love cat. People love to talk about pets and stuff like that. It's to say that if you look around everything in your office, everything in your bathroom, everything in your bedroom, everything outside, and you realize how important all of that was to being where we are historically, that, that makes for really fascinating history. And that's why we've been able to talk about really interesting things like you know, from the 
the invention of the lawnmower to the role that tomatoes play uh, in, in human history. And that was one of the fun parts about really researching the, the one on house cats is that it's, it's, it's surprising, it's shocking to find out how much human history is intertwined with something like the cat. We're able to talk about all of that and how it intertwines with mm-hmm. things all over the place in unexpected ways. And yeah, now, now you know, I had a cat that brought in a bird alive and then lost it under my bed. So <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> you, you, these, the cats are not quite doing the same job that they used to. I think it would be a crime not to take this opportunity to talk a little bit about the history cats. Viewers have seen them make cameos in the videos and they always comment when they see one. But I did want to ask, do they cause trouble on set? Yes, sometimes they do knock things over or they'll come and make noise in the middle of something that I'm doing. Or I mean, I can't keep them out because they'll, they'll scratch at the door. Uh, and so they're, you know, they're funny, they're fun animals. So we've gotten, so we just let them wander. If a cat's wandering behind me during the episode, I don't mind. Uh, but they have sometimes, you know, knocked things over, pulled something loose. And of course they walk on the keyboard and I don't know how the cat knows, you know, keyboard shortcuts. I don't know them, but they can do things like you walk across my keyboard. And I'm like, how did you do that? And suddenly, you know, my keyboard's talking in Arabic or something and I, I don't know how to fix it. Uh, so they, they, they do. Uh, I can say about the history cats, people don't know, there's almost always a cat in the room uh, when I'm filming. Uh, they just don't always choose to be, you know, on, on camera. And uh, it's funny, sometimes they look like they're well-behaved, almost look trained. Episode on the Alton Giant, uh, Lucky just got up on the desk and looked at me like you, you know, like she was paying attention. Most of the time she's sleeping in the chair next to me. Uh, but uh, it, most of the time they're not cooperative. And people are like, you should put your cat in every episode. And, and I, if I could control where the cat was, it would make a life so much easier in every other way. Uh, but they're, it, they do cause trouble. They do do antics. And one of the wonderful things about the job that I have is I live in this, I have this sort of job where I can have these animals that I love and, and, and whose personalities mean everything to me uh, and be around. And we just, we just work around it. So even when they cause trouble. So I've, I remember uh, many years ago going into like an insurance place, a car insurance place. And it was, it was a little home, you know, mom and pop place. And they had their dogs there. And I thought, you know, it would be wonderful to have the sort of job where you could have your dog running around your place. And so that's, that's what we've got here. We don't have dogs, we have the cats, but, uh, and, and that means sometimes I come in and uh, you know, all of my challenge coins are on the desk because someone has bumped the thing and knocked them over. And, you know, it, we live with that because we love them. Magellan is sponsoring this episode and we'd like to thank them for continuing to make it possible for us to make these podcasts. And I've also been watching, I've been watching all kinds of things on Magellan every chance I get because there's just so much interesting stuff to watch on Magellan. And have you been watching anything particularly interesting lately? I agree with you. Sometimes I feel like Magellan's like my bookshelf. There's more there than I have time to watch. But one of the things I've really been enjoying lately is uh, something called Space Rip. You know, they do, uh, don't just do history documentaries. They do documentaries on all sorts of things, true crime and all sorts of, and, and they do a lot of space documentaries. Space Rip is a series. There's like some 30 some episodes, but they're really easy to watch. They're three minutes long, seven minutes long. And they're mostly the sort of ooh and ah sort of photographs that you get from NASA or from the International Space Station. And it, it's really, it's mesmerizing it's fun and then you can clip through a few of those in between things that you're doing and it, it really shows the diversity of Magellan TV that you can go from anything from a two-hour history documentary to a three-minute view from the, the International Space Station and it's just it's it's a lot of fun to watch I actually would suggest it to anybody uh, just fascinating to see the earth spin from from space 
And that's, you know, that's one of the great things about Magellan is that they, it's made by documentary filmmakers. They get the best documentaries and they're not, they're not looking for any one particular kind of documentary. They're looking for everything and just quality documentaries of any length. They're constantly coming out with new stuff. Uh, they just came out with one called Ivan the Terrible, which I am pretty excited about. The first episode I wrote was about uh, the false Dimitris a long time ago, but that's mm-hmm. uh, it has a connection, ties into Ivan the Terrible, and, and I'm, I'm interested mm-hmm. to watch that. But that's they, they add new stuff every single week of all kinds of different, no matter what you're interested in, there's always going to be something new to watch. There's always a special offer for viewers and listeners of The History Guy. I think right now the offer is 30% off an annual membership, which makes it less than like $3.50 a month for an annual. Uh, those change, but if you go to try.magellantv.com slash historyguy, you can see our current offer just for fans of The History Guy. Next is the story of Just Nuisance, the only dog ever enlisted in the Royal Navy, and a very good boy. Stay tuned after the episode to hear us talk a little more about Just Nuisance. The subject of today's episode is the only dog to have been officially enlisted in the Royal Navy. Just Nuisance was beloved by sailors in the greater Cape Town area of South Africa and bolstered the morale for countless Royal Navy personnel during the Second World War. Just Nuisance, able seaman of the Royal Navy, is history that deserves to be remembered. The dog breed that is today called the Great Dane was developed in Germany from imported English dogs, crossbreeds of English Mastiffs and Irish Wolfhounds. The dogs were bred for sport. They were catch dogs. When hunting large game like boar or bear, hunting dogs would track down the beast, but the massive catch dogs would hold it until the hunters could come with spears and kill or capture it. The use led to the breed commonly be called the German Boarhound. Although the origin of the breed goes back to the 16th century, the modern breed was largely developed during the 19th century, by which time firearms had largely eliminated the need for catch dogs, and the breed was mostly kept by wealthy individuals as a hobby, a novelty because of its great size. The name most often used for the breed today actually was coined by a French naturalist in the 18th century, who chose the name Great Dane because of rising tensions between Germany and other European nations. As a breed, the Great Dane is large. While Mastiffs can be heavier, Great Danes are the tallest of the dog breeds. American Kennel Club breed standards require that a male be at least 30 inches at the shoulder, and the world record holder for tallest dog, according to Guinness, was a Great Dane named Zeus, who was 44 inches at the shoulder. They're described as a short-haired breed with a strong galloping figure that combines in its regal appearance dignity, strength, and elegance with great size and a powerful, well-formed, smoothly muscled body. Despite their size, Great Danes are known for a friendly personality. Adam Boyko, an associate professor in biomedical sciences at the Cornell University College of Veterinary Medicine and a founder of the canine genomics and biotechnology company Embark, explains, Great Danes are gentle giants, but this friendliness and patience is also accompanied with courage and intelligence, making them particularly adaptable and dependable companions for anyone willing to put up with their extraordinary size and strength. That description fits well with a particular Great Dane born on April 1st, 1937, in South Africa, in the Cape Town suburb of Rondebosch. The dog had a good pedigree, and the litter was registered with the South African Kennel Union. The dog was sold as a puppy to a man named Benjamin Cheney, who had put an advertisement in a newspaper, seeking a dog to replace his previous dog, who had passed away. Even as a puppy, it was clear that the Great Dane was going to be large, even for its breed. 
When Cheney took him to a veterinarian to treat a sore on his tail which wouldn't heal because the friendly puppy wagged his tail so vigorously that it kept hitting objects, the veterinarian told Cheney, By the way, I should buy a very strong collar and chain leash. Your hound is the most magnificent physical specimen of a dog I have ever had in my surgery. It's got the heart and lungs of a horse. It was equally clear that the dog was clever. The first night he brought the dog home, Cheney gave the dog slices from a joint of lamb from the refrigerator. In the morning, when Cheney came into the kitchen, he found the joint gone from the refrigerator and the bone licked smooth as a toothbrush handle. Having only seen it once, the dog had figured out how to open the refrigerator. The dog also figured out how to open the water tap, although he learned the hard way which side was hot and which side was cold. After burning his tongue once, the dog learned to put a paw under the water first to make sure it was not too hot. The dog also apparently house-trained itself, following a practice of moving away from the house, digging a hole with its forepaws, doing its business, and then burying it by kicking the dirt back in with its rear paws. The dog would then drag his bottom for a few yards to make sure it was clean, lick all four paws clean, and come back to Cheney to offer a paw to shake. Cheney was in charge of the United Services Institute in Simonstown, which provided comforts for men in the Royal Navy, Army, and Air Force. Cheney kept the dog at work where the puppy encountered servicemen. Because Simonstown was the location of the Royal Navy base for the South Atlantic Squadron, the vast majority of the men the dog encountered were sailors, and he developed a peculiar fondness for Royal Navy sailors, especially the ratings who wore the traditional square-rigged uniform with bell-bottom trousers and a jumper with a square collar hanging over the back. The dog seemed to be friends with any man in a square-rigged uniform, but was cold towards officers and petty officers who wore the different fore-and-aft uniform with narrow-legged trousers and a button coat. It was downright disdainful of women, well, human women, that is, very fond of female Great Danes. The dog followed sailors around town, although he was known not to choose favorites, and after following one sailor for hours, might then just wander off with another. It was during this time that a sailor took the dog on the train, buying a ticket for the dog to the naval yard, and took him aboard the cruiser, HMS Neptune. The sailor spoiled the dog with food, and he took to riding the train to the naval yard daily. Dogs were commonly kept as mascots, and sailors were fond of pets, but this dog, by 15 months over 150 pounds, liked to lounge on the gangplank, making it difficult for sailors to conduct business. It was this trait that prompted the sailors to give him the name Nuisance. If he had a name previous to that, it was not recorded. Nuisance was both particularly friendly, to sailors at least, and particularly intelligent, and quickly became beloved by the sailors at the base. The mess crew fed him so much food that the petty officer in charge feared that the missing food would be discovered in the ship's record. He listed the food as meat unfit for human consumption, and thus disposed of for reasons of health. Disposed of, of course, meant fed into nuisances massive maw. But there was a problem. To get to the naval yard, the dog would ride the train, something he became quite adept at. Some stories suggest that he was so intelligent that he knew the train routes and times, but he was, after all, just a dog and most likely was simply following sailors. But railway officials were frustrated with him taking up a seat and frightening customers. They would throw him off at the first stop if he didn't have a ticket. Usually, he would patiently wait on the platform and simply reboard the next train. Sailors and eventually regular commuters who grew used to seeing him would aid him in avoiding the railway conductors. Finally, officials of South African Railways were fed up and informed Cheney that if he could not keep the dog off the train, they would have to put him down. Cheney, unable to guarantee the dog would not board a train, decided instead to sell him. This led to a remarkable event. Nuisance was beloved at the naval base, and the sailors made an outcry that went all the way up to the Commander-in-Chief of the Royal Navy in the South Atlantic, who used his authority as Fleet Admiral to enlist Nuisance in the Royal Navy.
Well, there had been animal mascots aboard Royal Navy vessels for centuries. Nuisance was the first, and only, dog to be officially inducted into the Royal Navy. The Navy purchased a season pass for the railway until the enlistment could be finalized. The pass was attached to his collar. When he was enlisting, he was required to have a medical inspection. The surgeon commander found him so fit that the medical officer said if all ratings were as fit as this animal, there would be no requirement for a doctor at this depot. The enlistment paper required a first name. Petty officer at the enlistment table said he'd only ever been called nuisance, just nuisance. So the lieutenant doing the enlistment gave his first name as Just. As Just Nuisance had, they decided, been performing his duty unofficially for 18 months before enlistment, he did not enroll as an ordinary seaman, the lowest rank, but instead as an able seaman. His religion was listed as Canine Divinity League. His enlistment papers were signed with a paw print. All sailors in the Royal Navy were required to wear a cap when outside, so one was issued as his uniform, although he was eventually given permission to go without the cap, unprecedented for a Royal Navy sailor, as it caused him discomfort. The dog was freed from normal duty, but required to be present on parade. Special instructions were given for his liberty and feeding, and a barracks assigned where he had a regular bunk. Among the privileges of joining the Royal Navy, sailors of the Navy were allowed free travel on the train. Just Nuisance's official date of enlistment was August 25th, 1939. Nine days later, on September 3rd, Britain and its empire declared war on Germany. Just Nuisance continued to show his intelligence. He recognized God saved the king and would stand still at attention, his ears erect and his tail straight out when it was played. Likewise, when the midday cannon was fired in Simonstown, everyone was expected to be silent for two minutes to recognize all the sailors at sea. Just Nuisance would always observe the rule and give a low growl to any who did not. He was known for helping sailors who had over-imbibed. If he saw a sailor staggering, he would come to his side and escort him to a base or a service institution, where he usually had a regular bunk himself, watching over his charge until they awoke. If the dog saw two sailors fighting, he would break the fight up, pushing in between them and even standing up. He was over two meters tall on his hind legs, pushing them apart. The dog was gentle around children and only hostile to people who abused him. One time a drunken sailor passed out in Nuisance's bunk. The dog climbed in and pushed the man off the bed. The sailor, still drunk, tried to punch Nuisance. Nuisance reared up and pushed him on his shoulders, knocking him down. Nuisance then straddled the man, threatening him with his massive jaws. Another sailor intervened and calmed the dog down. Despite a few incidents where the dog got angry, Just Nuisance was never known to bite a man. He was beloved by sailors, who at times banded together to keep the dog out of trouble. One time when he interrupted a dance at a theater, and he was likely just expressing his opinion of the entertainment, the sailors present protected him from being arrested by insisting that he was chasing a rat. The sailors at the base even managed to sneak him aboard aircraft patrolling for German submarines, something he enjoyed greatly. Shop owners in the town loved the dog. He was so popular that if he decided to come into a shop, it would draw sailors from all over. They brought him so many drinks, lager was his favorite, that the base commander had to put a notice out to limit the dog to six quarts a night. Dr. Boyko suggests never giving a dog alcohol. Dogs were not built to tolerate alcohol, and even consuming small amounts of it can lead to life-threatening metabolic acidosis. Nuisance may have been able to tolerate alcohol only because of his large size, since larger dogs have slower metabolisms. While Nuisance could be, well, a nuisance, and was brought up on various offenses from arriving at the base late to riding the train without his pass, his military record was good. His conduct papers read, Character, very good. Efficiency, moderate. Discipline, poor. But he was more than a distraction for sailors. One night he found a sailor on the base who had passed out from malaria and barked until someone came. 
the attending physician credited nuisance with saving the man's life. An officer recalled him warning him of a dangerous scorpion and killing the arachnid. Likewise, he did the same, warning off men from a cobra and cleverly killing the snake, kicking dirt at it until it was confused and then pouncing and crushing its head. Nuisance played his role in the war effort. He accompanied the base commander to community events, raising money for the war effort. He was used in propaganda, became one of the most famous dogs in the world, and postcards of the dog were sold. He was bred, and two of his puppies were auctioned for the war effort. But his real role was as a friend to sailors, where his constant antics and gentle aid provided valuable distraction and comfort in a difficult time. Just Nuisance is still remembered in Simonstown, where there's a statue of him. And in 1985, his life and antics were chronicled by author Terence Sisson, who was a Navy flyer who knew and befriended Just Nuisance during the war. The book is full of anecdotes told by people who knew the dog. And the book, Just Nuisance A.B., Meeting Abel Seaman, is a great read if you can still find a copy. Dr. Boyko notes that Great Danes, because of their large size, are particularly vulnerable to joint disorders like hip dysplasia. Just Nuisance, who had injured himself doing things like jumping off of moving trucks, and who had once jumped off a Royal Navy cruiser when the crew had tried to Shanghai him, swam three miles to shore, eventually developed paralysis of the sciatic nerve, had to be put down. He was euthanized on April 1st, 1944, his seventh birthday. The next day he was buried with full naval honors, including a bugler playing last post, and a volley fall over his grave. More than a hundred sailors and men attended, a testament to their affection for their fellow seamen. Just Nuisance's descendants live on today. Of the endless numbers of amazing historical stories, I think there's, there's always something kind of special when we talk about animals and doing some incredible things that you don't necessarily expect the animals to do, but also the, just the roles they've played in people's lives. We have talked about a number of them, and I'm sure we'll talk about a lot more. What do you think draws people to these kinds of stories? There's actually quite a lot of research out there. If you want to type into Google sometime, you know, why do people care so much about animals and people care more about animals than people are? I mean, how, how do you explain that? Uh, and I think there's, there's a lot of different reasons, but I, I really do like to say it's compelling history. Uh, and uh, that's part of what draws people to it is if, uh, if you really understand, I mean, uh, uh, how important dogs were in a hunter-gatherer society, if you really understand how important cats were to civilization, if you really understand how important camels and llamas and horses uh, were in different parts of history in different places, uh, then you can see how we develop such an affinity for it. I mean, how these are species that learn to work together to survive. And that's all, that's all history. When you look at the, the deep history between humans and animals, then you can see why we are so compelled listening to animal stories. Uh, and then there's just that, uh, that other die idea. We got that when we talked about the mercy dogs a, f uh, a few weeks ago, about the you know, dogs that were sent out in battlefields to, to find wounded men. Um, uh, that there's, there's almost this feeling like they're, they're better. Uh, they represent what's best in us. They represent something that's unselfish uh, and represent something that wouldn't start a war, uh, but certainly would uh, aid people who are victims of war. And so it's funny that sometimes we see the best of humanity uh, in something that's not human. So we might be anthropomorphizing that. We might be shoving that all in from our own minds, but you can see why the stories become compelling uh, and that's a great story about Just Nuisance. I mean, he, he was not just a character. But I mean, that, th that dog also was, was selfless. It saved lives. Uh, and uh, what, what did the dog have to gain in return? Uh, nothing. And if you think about it, that's, that's what we hope from 
heroes, from our best heroes in humanity, someone that would risk their lives to save other lives with nothing personal to gain from that. And that's part of why these stories are so, and we've had so many great stories of, of animals and the way they interacted with humans. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed these stories of forgotten history, and if you did, you can find more on our YouTube channel at The History Guy. History deserves to be remembered. We will continue to release podcasts every other week, so stick around if you want more podcasts on forgotten history. You can also find us on our website, thehistoryguy.net, and on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Rumble, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.